Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 7, The Olympics and the First Mycenaean War. So just to recap, Corinthia is in the northeast corner of the Peloponnese. Argos is in the east. Laconia and Sparta are in the southeast. Messenia is in the southwest. Elis and Olympia are in the west. And Achaea is in the north. Now there is another kingdom in the Peloponnese called Arcadia, and they are located in the center of the island. To the south of the Peloponnese and stretching across the southern edge of the Aegean Sea is the long island of Crete. When you travel north from Corinth across the Isthmus, you enter a large strip of land that runs across the top of the Peloponnese. This land is divided into smaller kingdoms. On the bottom right of this strip of land is Attica. Attica is a fertile plain where the city of Athens was erected. Now, if you were to travel further east by boat into the Aegean Sea, there are many islands that continue out into the water. These islands are called the Cyclades, and they spread right across the water into Anatolia. To the west of Attica is Boeotia. Now, Boeotia is another fertile plain surrounded by mountains and is home to the ancient city of Thebes. And just north of this land is a very long island that parallels the north coast of Boeotia and Attica, called Euboea. Now, if you travel further west from Boeotia, you get the kingdom of Phocis, or Phocas, which was home to Delphi, the city of the great oracle of Delphi. Now, Phocis was bordered by Aetolia on the west, which was the furthest west you could go. And this pretty much covers all of mainland Greece. If you go a little further north, up the Balkan Peninsula, you get to a flatter region called Thessaly. And beyond this, you reach the top of the Aegean Sea, which is known as Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is considered the backwater of Greece and was said to be filled with uncivilized barbarians. The northeast corner of the Aegean Sea is a land called Thrace. And this is where the edge of Europe meets the tip of Asia at a narrow strait called the Bosphorus. Now this covers all of mainland Greece, but if you know anything about the country today, you know the nation also has thousands of small islands, many of them with popular tourist destinations. These islands had populations throughout the entire Bronze Age. In fact, we already talked about them when we discussed the Minoan period. But the Greek colonies in this region were mostly formed after the collapse of the Greek Bronze Age, when the Dorians invade the Peloponnese and force most of the local Aeolian and Ionian Greeks out of their ancestral lands. They first sought refuge in the city of Athens, but were soon after relocated on the small islands. One thing we need to address before we start talking about Greek colonization is the global temperature. During the height of the Minoan period, the world was experiencing one of its warmest periods in thousands of years. However, the temperature plummeted after the year 1200 BC and continued to plummet for centuries. This colder weather made it harder to grow crops and led to a decrease in human population. 
If you don't have enough crops to field your community, you must turn to hunting and gathering, or pillaging. However, it is around the year 800 BC that the weather stops dropping and slowly starts warming again. This increase in global temperature led to longer growing seasons, and soon there was enough food to support a strong and healthy population. The downside was that every major Greek polis was located in a narrow valley that limited the amount of food they could grow. This meant that entire groups of people either chose or were forced to leave their home cities and find another place to settle. When there's literally no more land to farm, the only alternative is to get in your boat and set sail. At first, the tiny islands in the middle of the Aegean Sea were not enough land to support entire settlements, so the Ionians fleeing the Dorians ended up settling along the western coast of Turkey, in a city called Miletus. Miletus was originally part of the Hittite Empire, with influence from the Minoans. After the Mycenaeans came to power, they settled in the Hittite city, but shortly afterwards the city was burned to the ground like the rest of the cities at the end of the Bronze Age. In fact, Miletus was right on the front lines and was hit harder than most cities. After the collapse of the Greek Bronze Age, the Dorians invaded Greece and most of the Ionians fled to Athens for refuge. The Athenians knew of the ancient city of Miletus and sent most of the refugees across the sea to settle the ruins of Miletus, and they quickly rebuilt it into a prosperous polis. So now there was a Greek population thriving on the coast of Turkey, which back then was called Anatolia. Another place to be colonized by the Ionians was a large island called Samos. This island was far across the Aegean Sea and was almost touching the coast of Anatolia. Here the population grew and thrived, as they were now separated from the warring tribes of the mainland and were able to plant vineyards and grow as an independent polis. Of course, we can't forget about the island of Crete. And I know we already covered this one in the first episodes, but we have to discuss it again as it is still an important part of ancient Greece. We already discussed how the Minoans ruled the island of Crete, specifically the palace city of Knossos, and after the devastating eruption of Thera, the Mycenaeans invaded Crete. Now this period lasted as long as the Greek Bronze Age did, and was eventually burned to the ground like the rest of the major cities. Knossos was no exception. But after the collapse of the Bronze Age, the Dorians sailed from the southern tip of the Peloponnese and settled the island of Crete. With warmer summers and higher crop yields, the Greek population started to explode. There were two cities in particular, Chalcis and Eritrea, on the island of Euboea. If you don't remember from our early geography lesson, Euboea is the long island north of Attica. I'm not sure if you are familiar with American geography, but Euboea is almost as long as Long Island, New York. At this time in Greek history, the island of Euboea was a superpower in the region. They controlled the seas and most of the trade. These two city-states, Chalcis and Eritrea, were Ionian cities, founded by refugees fleeing the Dorians several centuries earlier, and they had grown extremely wealthy and needed outside resources to keep their enterprises operating. The Polis sponsored settlements where they could mine copper or grow cereals. This was a coordinated effort. Scouts searched for the best land throughout the Mediterranean to build their new settlement. 
Once the decision was made on the place of the newly established colony, the polis chose a leader who would run the new venture on behalf of the mother polis. Before the first settler ever left the mother city, it was already decided what the status and the relationship would be between the mother polis and the colony. Now the leader of the colony could choose to relocate the colony if they arrived at the location with their settlers and found there was no fresh water for several months or the soil was too weak to grow crops. They weren't forced to set up shop exactly where the leaders of the polis told them to. Once the leader of the colony arrived on site, they had a very specific set of tasks they had to complete. The leader was going on a set of blueprints as this venture was planned out in extreme detail. First they were to build the main buildings and then erect the houses around the center. They also had grid systems set in place for roads and houses. Next the leader was to erect temples and public buildings to store supplies. After the city was erected, walls were built around the settlement, securing the new houses and markets. These colonies were almost always built on peninsulas, where they had the least amount of walls to build and the maximum amount of access to the sea. But they also needed a sufficient amount of fresh water to flow into their city from the land. The land was also divided amongst the colonists, with some land reserved for later colonists about to arrive on site. And finally, the leader was given the task of naming the colony. Some of these colonies were founded far from home, and it was very common for the Greeks to intermarry with the natives of the land they were colonizing. The colony was definitely created in its mother's image. The laws started the same, the culture started the same, and even the customs and religions started the same way. But from the moment of the colony's conception, the city was independent. The mother polis did not rule over the colony, but if the mother city worshipped a specific god and had temples to that god, it was most likely that the colony would continue that tradition and worship the same god and erect temples to the same deity. The bond between the two cities was always strong, and not just because of the cultural similarities, but because there were family members in both cities who would frequently visit each other. Oftentimes, the mother city would continue to grow in population, and they'd have to ship off another 10% of their population to the colony. Now this helped grow the colony in strength, but oftentimes would mean the colony was now becoming overpopulated. The location of these colonies were almost always in regions where the natives were not strong enough to defeat the Greeks. The Greeks were organized fighters, far superior to the ragtag bandits, but they couldn't stand up against an army like the Egyptians. So most of the colonies were formed in regions with a small and unorganized native population. Sometimes they straight up massacred the natives. Other times they pushed them aside and forced them to relocate. And other times they assimilated with the natives or just allowed them to live among them. It seemed to differ from polis to polis. Lots of times the natives prospered from the Greek colonizers as they brought in goods from the Middle East and spread the written language. This was the dawning of the Hellenization period. The first colonies were formed in the northern Aegean Sea, or what would soon be known as Macedonia. While the Ionian settlers quickly discovered the fertile lands of southern Italy and Sicily. In 
In 825 BCE, the first planned colony that we have records of was founded through the cooperation of the Polis Chalice and Eritrea of the island Euboea. They sent colonists across the Mediterranean Sea to the coast of modern-day Syria, north of the Phoenicians. Almina was a central trading post between the ancient Greeks and the Middle East. In 776 BCE, the very first Olympic Games were held in Olympia. The ancient Olympic Games were originally a festival or celebration of and for the Sky Father or God Zeus. Greeks from all over the region traveled to Olympia and competed to honor the king of the gods. The pilgrimage to the city was part of the celebration as Greek men from all over the region traveled to participate in the games. City-states or polis that were at war with each other would call a temporary truce to allow their best men to travel to Olympia to compete in the games. The celebrations included events such as sprinting, wrestling, shot put, chariot racing, and even ultimate forms of fighting such as pancration. This was a no-rules form of fighting where the first to submit lost. After the Olympic Games in 720 BCE, the sprinting champion Orsippus of Megara lost his loincloth and completed the race naked. And ever since, the Games were carried out naked, and women were forbidden from participating in these Games. This didn't mean women were excluded from participating in the festival and celebrations, as there was a smaller celebration for just the women. These Games weren't created to honor Zeus, but instead they were made to honor the goddess Hera. These games were held for over a thousand years before the Roman Emperor Theodosius I banned them in the year 394 AD. That is 1,171 years. While Euboea was colonizing the known world, there was a domestic dispute brewing in southern Greece that was about to turn the tides in Greek history forever. If you remember, the peninsula at the very bottom of Greece was called the Peloponnese, and a mountain chain ran right down the center of the peninsula, cutting the southern coast into two halves. The valley on the left side of the mountains was called Messinia, and the valley on the right was called Lacedaemonia. Lacedaemonia was home to one of the most ruthless tribes of Dorians, and they were known as the Spartans. There was a kind of unwritten rule that Dorians looked out for Dorians. But this wasn't entirely true. Dorians fought each other all the time. But if an Ionian city went to war with a Dorian city, you would expect all the surrounding Dorian settlements to unite and fight off the Ionians. Now this was happening at the current time in our narrative. The Spartans were Dorian, and so were all of the neighboring settlements in Lacedaemonia. Yet the Spartans were on a war path to conquer all of their neighbors. At the same time, the Messinians, on the other side of the mountains, were also conquering their neighbors. These two cities, Messinia and Sparta, were bent on ruling the southern half of the Peloponnese. In the year 768 BCE, the Messinians and the Spartans had a lot in common. They were both Greek, obviously. They were both Dorian. We just mentioned that. They were also warmongers. This is another obvious point. They worshipped the same gods and spoke the same language. 
One of the sacred temples the Messenians and Spartans both frequented for sacrifice and worship was located in the steep mountains between the two kingdoms. This was the temple of Artemis Limnatus. This was a Dorian temple only. No Ionians or Aeolians or Achaeans were allowed anywhere near this sacred place. An incident happened at the temple when a group of Spartan women and Mycenaean men were there at the same time. Now this must have happened many times before without incident, but this time was different. King Telechios of Sparta and a group of Spartan women were there, specifically Spartan virgin women. Now a fight broke out, either the Mycenaean men started whistling at the young Spartan women, or a few vulgar comments were made. Either way, it got pretty ugly. The Mycenaean men ended up beating the Spartan king to death and raped the young women, which created an uproar in the Spartan community. Now the Mycenaeans will tell a different story. They said these weren't young Spartan virgins, and instead were beardless assassins dressed as women who were trying to assassinate Mycenaean nobles, and King Telechios was their leader. It's impossible to tell which side was telling the truth. Even the source of this history, Pausanias, doesn't specify which story was correct. But what is noted is the fact that these two groups forever hated each other afterwards, and eventually this tension would lead to an all-out war. A generation later, in the year 743 BCE, one of the Olympic champions, Polycarus, a Messenian, was grazing his cattle on Spartan land. This land was technically in Messenia, but it was owned by a Spartan named Yelfnus. This is a fair arrangement. Polycarus paid the landowner Yelfnus to graze his cattle on his land. Seems fair enough. Yelfnus took Polycarus' money and waited for him to go home. Then immediately sold his cattle to some other farmer. When Polycarus came back to collect his cattle and saw they were all missing, Yelfnus lied and said pirates took his cows. Polycarus was pissed off and bummed out at the same time. How could this happen? Polycarus was trying to figure out how he was going to make up for the huge loss when one of the local farmers informed Polycarus that he was ripped off and the Spartan landowner cheated him and sold all his cows for slaughter. Polycarus was furious. Not just your regular road rage angry, but UFC fighting championship angry. This wasn't some random farmer Eophilus ripped off. This was a winner of the Olympic Games. Polycarus was a champion and a beast of a man, and now he was angry. Polycarus, with his giant muscles and beet red face, marched straight up to the farmer and interrogated him. Screaming and yelling, he demanded his money back and compensation for all the cows. The frightened farmer, Eophilus, agreed to pay him back, but he didn't have the money on him. He had to go back to Sparta to get the money, and then he would be able to pay Polycarus. For some dumb reason, Polycarus' son thought it would be a good idea to keep an eye on Eelfness, make sure he didn't run away as soon as he made it into Sparta. So he decided to accompany Eelfness on his journey back to Sparta and keep an eye on him, make sure he didn't try to run away or find some other way of getting away with his crime. And just as you would expect, as soon as Eelfness was safely back in Lacedaemonia, he murdered Polycarus' son. What do you think Polycarus did as soon as he realized the same Spartan who stole all of his cows 
just murdered his son. He went into a rage. That's what he did. Polycarus went on a vigilante rampage. Obviously, he sent a strongly worded letter to Sparta demanding justice. But he couldn't sit back and wait. Polycarus wandered the mountain pass between Laconia and Messenia, and he murdered every single Spartan he found along his journey. Polycarus was blood drunk, and after learning about the murderous rampage of Polycarus, the government in Sparta responded. And instead of answering with a, yeah, we'll bring Eolfnos to justice, instead, they answered by demanding the government of Messenia hand over their Olympic champion, so that Sparta could punish him for murdering their citizens in the countryside. Now the two kingdoms were at an awkward standstill. Both governments were demanding the extradition of the other's citizens. The Mycenaeans said that they would only give over Polycarus in exchange for Eolfnos. This awkward exchange led the Spartans to send an envoy to Messenia to negotiate with their kings. You see, there were two kings in Messenia. One was named Antiochus, and the other Androcles. Androcles was in favor of extraditing Polycarus to Sparta, while Antiochus was strongly against this. In fact, he thought the idea of handing over their Olympic champion to be executed by the Spartans was insane. This disagreement between the two kings led to a heated argument, which led to fighting. And I'm not just talking about shouting and insulting, but hand-to-hand combat, which saw the Messenian king Androcles killed in the middle of the negotiations. Antiochus told the Spartan messengers that he would consult with the other polis in the region for advice on this matter. But this could have just been a delay. Either way, the Spartan messengers returned to Sparta and they told their king of the fight between Androcles and Antiochus and how one of the kings was murdered. Yet, none of them had agreed to hand over Polycarus for justice. A few months later, Antiochus himself died and this prompted the Spartans to invade Messenia while they were leaderless. A large army was assembled and marched through the mountains to the kingdom of Messenia. This war was justified by the Spartan kings to bring justice over the crimes of Polycarus, or even the rape of the Spartan virgins 25 years earlier. But in reality, this was the result of overpopulation and a need for more land. The other Greek polis were already colonizing at this point because of the same issues. Only Sparta didn't have a navy to send out colonizers to find new land. The only way for Sparta to expand was to conquer its neighbors across the mountains. This massive army crossed the mountain pass and entered the valley of Messenia. Normally, a war in archaic Sparta was short and for a just cause. This way, the Spartans could maintain their honor before the gods, but also so they could return home in time to harvest their crops. But this time it was different. Every Spartan soldier was forced to give an oath to the king. They swore they would not abandon the war until the very last soldier of Messenia was destroyed. It was a very strange oath, 
one that no one had to give before. This war, from the very beginning, was meant to be a war of attrition. This bloodthirsty army of Spartans crossed the mountains, and the first city they hit was called Amphia. This was a surprise attack. There was no declaration of war or a buildup of arguments. The Spartans went from mildly angry to righteous genocide in seconds. The army of Spartans descended upon the unsuspecting city, whose gates were still open, and they sacked the place. Every single man inside was stabbed to death with swords or pikes. The women were dragged out of their homes and raped before being carried off to be brought home as slaves. The buildings were set on fire with the children still inside screaming. Animals were slaughtered and the entire city was burned to the ground. The once beautiful city of Amphia was gone and it never came back. In fact, to this day, we do not know the true location of Amphia. In the place of this burnt city, the Spartans built a military base to launch all of their attacks against the people of Messenia. News of the invasion soon reached the capital city, and the new king of Messenia, the son of Antiochus, rallied his men. Orders were given to arm every single man in the kingdom and prepare for an all-out war against the invading Spartans. Be true in the hour of need. The justice of the gods is on our side, as we were not the ones who struck first. Before the war was fully kicked off, there were several men in the community who thought a war amongst the Dorians was a bad idea, and peace should be sought amongst all else. These men were quickly banished from Messenia, and they were sent to colonies abroad. Even at this time in history, the Spartans had a reputation for being the toughest fighters in the land. There were people in Sparta who also had concerns about going to total war against fellow Dorians, and the Spartan king declared that they will march against the land that is not divided into lots. Now this might seem silly, but what he was saying was that the Messenians were not a civil society, because they didn't treat their citizens as equal subjects. If all citizens are equal, then they should all get an equal portion of the land to farm, which they called lots. Sparta prided itself in dividing its land among its citizens equally. Equal lots for equal men. The war lasted for over 20 years. The Spartans had sworn an oath not to return home until the enemy was destroyed, or they were all dead. So the fighting continued. Most of the Messenians hid behind their walls while the Spartans attacked from the mountains, and the guerrilla warfare continued on. Year after year, after decades of fighting, the Messenians gathered an army and decided it was time to face the Spartans in open battle. Now this was something they had been avoiding up until now. The battle was to take place at the ruins of the city Anphia, which was now a Spartan camp. The Messenians lined up their entire army in formation with their king and top generals in line while the Spartan army, with their two kings and top general, lined up on the opposite side of the field. It was these two great armies, 
finally lined up facing each other. Their hatred for each other kept them in formation. Decades of brutality made them bloodthirsty. The king of each army gave a valiant speech to their men. The Spartan king spoke of the oath the soldiers gave many years before, and if they ever wanted to see their homes or families again, they would win this battle. The Mycenaean king also gave a speech, and he spoke about their fight for survival, and if they failed this battle, their entire families would be killed or sold into slavery. Finally, both armies charged at each other. This was a decisive moment. The Mycenaeans were screaming and shouting in rage as they charged valiantly into the Spartan ranks. But the Spartans did not charge. In fact, they maintained their position and waited for the Mycenaeans to come to them. Not a single Spartan soldier broke rank. And the discipline of the Spartans meant their pikes were lined up in a long wall of iron spikes. When the Mycenaeans hit the Spartans, the majority of them were skewered. The Spartans held their position and then thrust it forward, breaking the Mycenaean charge. This was not a Greek phalanx. Definitely not the phalanx we are familiar with, like the one in the movie 300. But this is possibly the moment in time where the Spartans understood the advantage of sticking together as a cohesive unit and not breaking rank. It is possible that this was the birth of the Greek phalanx. This was an utter defeat for the Mycenaeans. But all hope was not lost. The survivors of the battle retreated to the mountain of Athome. It was quickly realized that attacking the Spartans in open combat was stupid. And it almost cost them everything. Well, they weren't going to make that mistake again. So the Mycenaeans huddled together in the mountain of Athome and dug in their defenses. They also sent a messenger to the Oracle of Delphi for help. They needed guidance from the gods. And the Oracle responded and told the Mycenaeans that if they wanted to succeed in battle they would have to sacrifice a virgin to the oracle. A hero from the war was chosen, and his daughter was handed over to the oracle of Delphi as a sacrifice. The Spartans caught wind of this deal between the Mycenaeans and the oracle, and they trembled in fear. The Spartans were very religious, and they trusted the prophecies of the oracle. This caused the Spartans to retreat from the mountain, which dragged the war on. For many more years. After several years of indirect fighting, most of which resulted in Mycenaean victories, believe it or not, the Spartans organized a push. Now, the Spartan army was consolidated, and the two kings launched a full scale attack against the Mycenaeans. Now, feeling overconfident from the oracle, but also just the past several years of victories against the Spartans in very small skirmishes, the Mycenaeans felt like maybe they could take on the Spartans in an open battle. This was definitely overconfidence on the Mycenaeans, as the last time they charged, they were almost wiped out to the last man. And this time, when they charged the Spartans, the Mycenaeans ran screaming and shouting with their swords drawn. 
And still the Spartans held their ground, and they never broke rank. And the entire army of Messenians ran up against the Spartan walls and crashed into their lines. And almost every single one of them was skewered on the pikes of the Spartans, and they were all killed that day, including the king of the Messenians. It was a total defeat, and the surviving Messenians were forced to appoint a new king. Now the king they chose was the same man who sacrificed his daughter to the oracle at Delphi. This new king managed to do a good job and regroup the Messenians, and he managed to push the Spartans back into the mountains. It was almost over for the Spartans. The men that still lived hadn't seen their home or families in over 20 years. Their morale was shot. They were almost defeated. Yet they had won several key battles. They just needed a little more encouragement. So the king of Sparta decided they should send their own messenger to the oracle at Delphi. And when the Spartan messenger made it to the oracle, they offered whatever was needed to reverse their decision against the Messenian victory. And whatever it was the oracle asked for, the Spartans delivered. Probably another young girl, maybe a couple. And sure enough, the oracle declared the gods had changed their minds. They now favored the Spartans. And with this new divine support from the oracle and the gods, the Spartans regrouped. Their morale was boosted. And maybe it was because they had the gods on their side. Maybe it was because they were tired of war and they just wanted to go home. The Spartans formed up and they marched into Messenia with speed and violence. And this time they were unstoppable. The Spartans marched through the valley and killed everyone in sight. They took no prisoners. They spared no buildings, men, women, and children. All slaughtered. Villages were set on fire. No one was spared. The Spartans broke through the ranks of the Messenians, and they continued to the fortifications on Mount Athome. The Messenians were terrified, and they dropped their shields and ran for their lives. The defeat was so great that the Messenian king committed suicide as the last of his men retreated from the kingdom and fled to the land to the north, to the kingdom of Elis. Any surviving Messenian who could not escape the onslaught but didn't die in the fighting was captured and enslaved. The Spartans who survived the 20-plus year war were rewarded with plots of land in Messenia, accompanied by its own group of slaves to work the soil. The Messenian slaves were turned into field workers, and from here on were nothing more than helots. Slaves to work the lot of land, they were beasts of burden and treated worse than dogs. This was a terrible ending for the Messinians, but a victorious accomplishment for the Spartans. Finally, after 20 plus years, they could go home to their families. Hooray! Unfortunately, the Spartan women were not faithful. The women couldn't wait for 20 years. For starters, no one knew if they would even live another 20 years, as this was antiquity. But also, there were legitimate men in the city ready to take on the deeds of a husband. Which meant there was an entire new generation of Spartan men and their children had taken over while the soldiers were off fighting in the war. 
This meant that not only was there a huge infidelity problem amongst the citizens of the nation, but also there was another overpopulation crisis. There was no other way to deal with this crisis. The people of Sparta were forced to send off their excess population to another plot of land. They were forced to start a colony, something they dreaded doing for decades. The location of this new colony was to be established on the southern boot of Italy, in a place known as Tarantum. This was Sparta's only colony, ever. Now if you were wondering, who was it who Sparta sent to Tarantum? It was the bastard children. So the soldiers who fought in the 20 plus year war were able to return home and stay there. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>